I'll be reading from Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then I'll be reading from 4 and 5. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Then I'll be reading from Hebrews 1 and 2. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the, the ancients were commended for. Then 30 and 31. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around there for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. How about a big round of applause for Caden and getting all those names. My goodness, well done. Join with me. Uh, I'll warn you ahead of time, the second slide is going to be a verse that you're not familiar with, so follow along. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Until the Son of God appear. Big, big, here we go. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Chorus one more time. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O You've heard it a hundred times, thousands of times. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Caden read it. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. I realize that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's, by the way, a very old song, one of the oldest of the Christmas carols that we sing. And yet, when you hear the tone of the song, when you listen to the words of the song, it is anticipatory. While it is written in a time that recognized the coming of Jesus, it is written in the tone of an expectation. First, an expectation as if we were Israel ourselves in exile, waiting for God to reappear and bring us out of exile. 
And in reality, the exile for Israel didn't really end. Because they never were restored to everything that God had promised until Jesus came. 400 years of hoping beyond the physical evidence. Hoping for what was unseen. The rest of the song will continue to unfold with that anticipatory language. But it now is not the anticipation that we haven't seen the Messiah come. It is the anticipation that he's coming again. Amen? And that when he comes again, all that he promised, all that was promised, will be fulfilled. And my guess is that it will be fulfilled in a way that is at least as unexpected in its specifics as the birth of Jesus was unexpected when he came 2,000 years ago. Faith shows us. Faith shows us what we can't see. Hope is when we put our faith in the things that we can't yet see. As we continue to examine the women in Jesus' life, we recognize the incredible faith in each and every different situation. But each and every situation, each and every woman that Matthew chooses to pull out of a genealogy that is traditional otherwise in that it fulfills the process of directly linking Jesus' birth both to David and to Abraham, these unexpected women show up. But what we can connect all of them with is an incredible determination. Risk-taking and life-changing, unexpected faith from these least expected sources. Let's start today, let's continue today by taking a look at Rahab. I appreciate Caden working so hard on getting the syllables correct in that way. Uh, the final B in Hebrew would be pronounced as a V. They didn't have uh, pronunciation of, of, of that letter, so Rahav. And um, while many of you were very entertained all Sunday by my movement from Tamar to Tamar, I'm sure you'll be equally entertained by my Texan Rahab and probably the more appropriate Rahab. Her story is found in Joshua chapter 2, and I would encourage you to open it up and read it. And not just to look at it today, but I encourage you to look at it as the week unfolds. As you unfold the way in which you see a determined, risk-taking, hope-filled faith in Rahab, the language is full and deep. I encourage you to read it in some different translations because the wording is deep and involved and the different translations will kind of point you to some nuances in the text. Hopefully I can point you to a few of them. I believe your investment of time in Joshua 2 and the passages that connect out of it that you can find in, if you'll dig into your study Bibles will be of great meaning to you. Her story is kind of lost almost in the story of the conquest of the land that Joshua's, the whole book of Joshua will point to, particularly because it is kind of the apex of the conquering of the land 
for the, for the whole story. It is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, conquering Jerusalem, of Jericho, of conquering Jericho, and its walls come tumbling down. How many children have enjoyed the songs that are about, and the walls came tumbling down, and we have great images of that that, that kind, of, kind of fill our imaginations, our biblical imaginations. But it is the Rahav story that gives probably the most meaning to what's going to take place in the first six chapters of Joshua. And in reality, to a certain extent, she provides the theological foundation for what will take place over the entire book. She serves in many ways as a prophet, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, speaking for God, Rahab. First of all, we know that Joshua sent two men to spy out the land. Verse 1 opens up with that statement. The, the, they are to go in, and, and in many ways, in the same way that chapter 1 really points us towards the transition between Moses, the leader of Israel, and now Joshua, the leader of Israel, Joshua will do what Moses did. If you look at chapter 1, Joshua is supposed to be courageous and strong, but his courage and his strength is based on an awareness of God's law, that to have, in, in reality, a physical copy of God's law with him, and he's to read it every day and not deviate it from it one way or the other, like Moses. And now, as we are about to enter a new phase, like Moses sent the 12 spies in, Joshua will send two. And you might ask, why two? Well, if we look back to numbers, we recognize that 12 went, but only two were faithful. And Joshua will send two. I don't, it does, the text doesn't say whether it was someone from Joshua's family and Caleb's family, the only two of the faithful spies, but only two went. Two were sent to spy out the land. And the spies, secondly, find refuge. You probably know this part. Refuge in the house, and please put quotes around it, in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. It is interesting that Hebrews, chapter 11, will call her Rahab the harlot, or Rahab the prostitute, depending on your translation. But when we look at Joshua, chapter 2, we recognize that this connection with prostitution and Rahab is not so much that she is one, but that the house that they visit is known for that. Now, I don't know that that diminishes it at all, but it seems to me that the tradition moves forward, and again, she becomes an even less likely mother, great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus, because tradition will more and more ascribe to her that title of Rahab the prostitute. The spies find refuge in her home. But the original language works extremely hard to make sure that we know that she is not, that they are not engaging in any kind of sexual activity with her. The language is specific. They enter the house. They don't enter the woman. They go up on the roof and she doesn't stay with them during the night. Instead, she visits them during the night. It's very specific language. Again, to a certain extent, redeeming Rahav who we're later going to hear such incredible confessions from. Third, as probably in most cities that had walls around them, people didn't come and go that weren't noticed. And strangers came in. Strangers at a time when there is an 
incredibly large group of people just across the Jordan River. And where Jericho sits, likely they could see this mass of people gathering on the eastern side of the river. And so when strangers came walking in, it caught attention. The king of Jericho confronts Rahab, Rahab, one, unless you have already messed up once before. Okay, all right. Confronts her, sends word to you, send the men out. And that's not enough because the text will continue and soldiers or agents or messengers from the king will come right to her door and have a conversation with her. And she continues to be unwilling. And make no mistakes, these statements are life-risking statements. These are people that the king has identified as spies. And so to house them was treason, but particularly to misrepresent where they were was even more treasonous. And even today, in our modern culture, treason brings the death penalty. You can make certain that it wouldn't simply have been Rahav, but probably Rahav and her whole family would have suffered that consequence for her misleading or her deception. In verses 2 and 6, we're told that Rahav provides shelter, which she will describe as kindness. Very important word. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. And that she expects kindness to be returned. She will even go so far as to create a, a tale. Oh, they're just in front of you. They're headed to the river. Maybe you can catch them. And so the messengers, the soldiers, whatever they may be, head out. The gate is closed. We're reminded the gate's closing, I think, three different times in the text. The gate closes, and they go all the way down to where you would cross the river, probably waiting in ambush for them to come that way. And it will be three days before they'll realize that they've been either been deceived or they aren't able to catch them. But what we find next, starting in verse 8, takes us completely off guard. Maybe it takes us off guard because we've already recognized that Rahab is identified as someone who lives in or that her home, the home of her family, is a house of prostitution. But more than that, it is something that takes us off guard and is completely unexpected because it is not from a person who is connected to Israel and to Moses and to the law and all the way back to Abraham. This is a woman who lives in Jericho. This is a Canaanite. And in the same way that last week Tamar becomes the one that Judah will say, she is more righteous than I am, Rahav produces a confession that is almost unparalleled in all of Scripture. Let's start reading in verse 8. Before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, 
that were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. This statement gets repeated over and over again. The Sorry, go back, David, my apologies. The land is going to be given to them. This is what God has told Joshua over and over again, but it is Rahab who then speaks it, almost prophesies it. God says, this is what I'm going to do, and Rahab says, you know what, I know you're going to do this. Very powerful word. The peoples have melted in fear goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 15. We're having come across the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam and the people sing a song of rejoicing called the Song of the Sea. You probably remember the the line, the horse and its rider have been thrown down. Fairly famous line from that. But as part of that, the promise is that God is going to go before them and he, quite, it's an exact quote, will melt the hearts of the people of the land. So that when you come in, they will already be afraid of you. And now Rahab affirms and in fact, to a certain extent, fulfills the prophecy. Forty years ago, God said he would do this. And now he has done it. And lastly, as Sihon and Og are completely destroyed, it is the same language used in Deuteronomy multiple times and in Joshua for what is to become of the nations that resist and the peoples that resist God's entering into the land and giving it to his people, utterly destroyed. Pick up again in verse 11. As soon as we heard it about the Red Sea, about the defeat of Sihon and Og, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. Notice the repetition of those phrases. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. And this translation probably doesn't catch the emphasis that's intended. Yours is the only God in heaven above and earth below. And that stands in contrast to most of the language that we find in Genesis, in Etiquette. Exodus that will continue to persist throughout the time of the judges and the time of the kings. That is to say, a language that says, no, no, God is greater than all the other gods. God will defeat all the other gods. All the other gods are mute. They don't act. They can't do anything. It is Rahab that kind of looks forward to the kind of confession that will take place in a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Again, acting in a powerful way like a prophet. It isn't just that Jehovah is greater than Baal. It isn't just that Jehovah is greater than all the other gods of all the other nations. It is that God is the only. And the New Testament, Paul particularly would add the words, the only true and living God. A God of the heavens above, the cosmos that we don't understand, and also the God of all that goes on here on the earth. What a powerful statement. But then there's that phrase. Now then, since I have dealt, starting in verse 12, now that since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord, that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. 
Give me a sign of good faith that you'll spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Deal kindly is a real specific word. And it's translated quite uniquely here because at some level it's seen as I've done something nice for you. But the word in reality is the same word that when God describes himself, he says, I'm a God of unending steadfast love, love that goes on to thousands of generations. That same word, that steadfast love word. Or maybe you know it from Jeremiah's lamentation. The steadfast love of the Lord never ends. His gracious mercy. His steadfast love. I have shown you the kind of love that is equal to the kind of love that God gives you. And I ask for you to be as faithful to me as God would be to you. Do you hear the echoes? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything you've got, complete loyalty to God. And the way you live that out is to love your neighbor as yourself. And to a certain extent, Rahab is saying, I could have destroyed you, and yet I chose to act in a way that's consistent with the way that God acts. And I ask for you to extend to me the same kind of love. Deal kindly. With me, I have dealt kindly me to you, and I'm asking you to deal kindly with me. And it's not just a me, Rahav. It's a me, my family, this whole group. Pick up in 14, David. The men said to her, on our life for you. The men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer wall of the city, and she resided within the wall itself. It's amazing what follows from here. It's this incredible exchange of covenant language. It is as if the story with Tamar last week where she She and Judah carry on this little exchange. I'll give you this, you give this to me. Oh, wait, you don't have that. Give me this in assurance, and then I'll, you know, the pieces of the puzzle. This is also the language that will follow in next week's lesson about Ruth and the covenant language that goes on between Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and Ruth. She asked them to enter into a covenant, and they put their lives on the line. It is a bit comical. How many of you remember the old Batman series? The, the groovy one, right? Um, no, nothing dark about it whatsoever. Um, they commonly had these conversations where Batman and Robin would be uh, on a bat rope going down a wall. And someone would stick their head out and have a conversation with them. It was kind of a comic relief thing. I'm not seeing any eyes open as if they remember those scenes. But, but it's kind of interesting because Rahab lets them out the window on the cord, and then we have this long conversation that takes place. I don't think that they got to the bottom and shouted back up, Hey, guards, we're over here. We're carrying on a conversation. But instead, 
I don't really think that they're hanging onto the rope, although this adds a certain amount of drama. Will you promise this to me as she holds a knife to the rope that keeps them inside the window? Probably the writer tells us what will happen, then tells us the conversation that happened in the room before they were let out. But I still love the Batman and Robin scene, and you can see her sticking her head out the window and talking to them. The red cord. They ask for a red cord. And in the same way that just days before Israel will cross the Red Sea on dry ground in fulfillment of God's promise to rescue them, and they place the red blood of a lamb on the, on the doorpost just days before Israel will cross the, the, the Jericho River is wrong. Jordan River, just days before they cross the Jordan River, a red cord will be around the window of Rahav's home. So what can we learn from Rahav's story? First for us, but also to inform our understanding of the Jesus story. First of all, the unexpected loyalty that is given by a woman who has everything to lose. And at least as far as what she can see, what is real, only things and nothing to gain. She has denied her people. She has lied to her king and deceived his messengers. She is a woman who has said, and again, almost foreshadowing, Ruth's voice. I want my people to be your people. I want my God to be your God. And Rahab expresses that kind of loyalty while standing, by the way, in a house on the wall of a city that when the trumpets blow on the seventh day is going to be completely flattened. She doesn't know that's how it will occur, but we know the end of the story. And we find this incredible statement of loyalty, of steadfast love, of deep kindness, incredibly unexpected. It is a powerful way in which God speaks to us and says, will you give that kind of loyalty, will you give that kind of steadfast love to God's people as you wait in anticipation for Christ's return? Will you give and be the kind of merciful, gracious servants to serve the people that God brings into your path? Some of you are, are enjoying and practicing our, our, uh, the giving manger project that our children's ministry is doing. And it is emphasizing the way Christmas so often becomes about what I'm getting. And it helps us realize that Christmas the time of celebrating the gift of Christ should be a time of giving. And maybe especially giving to those who haven't earned it. Gracious. Secondly, it is an absolutely unexpected confession. It is so powerful to hear these words come from Rahab's mouth. You and I, to a certain extent, expect them because we've read the story before. And we've read confessions of God's people over the years. 
But when we put Rahab in her setting and we put her clothes on her and we put her in Jericho and we put everything that the scene sets for us on her, not what we see in Hebrews chapter 11, here is a hero of the faith, but where she started and we say, how can words like this come from her? And at some level, we have to talk about a hope. I don't know what happened to make her house a home of prostitution, a house of prostitution. But one thing we can know about most prostitution in that day and in reality today, it is driven by poverty and despair. She was hoping for something that was beyond her own grasp. She couldn't take it for herself. She couldn't accomplish it for herself. In fact, in many ways, as this incredible company lay on the other side of the river and anticipated invading, all she could think of was, I will be ground up in that same invasion and nobody will ever remember my name or the name of my family. Note that she conf her confession points to something that happened 40 years before and something that happened kind of on the end of the sojourn in the wilderness, the war with the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. But she's been holding on to this story, and by the way, I'm not representing that she is 40 years old, but somewhere the 40-year-old story of a people crossing the Red Sea has lingered in her mind. And to a certain extent, she says, if God can do that for them, is there any way that he could do it for me? Unexpected hope. Let's be sure and say that this is not the only character in the Bible who will mislead or, let's just say it, lie to accomplish God's good. But in reality, when we examine her story, it is only the description of her house, this home of a prostitute, that gives us pause about her at all. How many in Israel would give this confection? How many in Israel would act in this kind of steadfast loyalty, love? And the list is pretty short. There's not a whole lot of heroes from Israel's story that lift God up in this way and act as unselfishly in this and point in a very tangible way from a, to a hope of something that they don't yet have. But she does. And to a certain extent, the text in no way tries to justify her misleading statements, but simply says her faith is greater than any way that she misled anyone who was trying to destroy God's plan. She hoped beyond her circumstances. She hoped beyond anything she could see. And I have to ask you, what causes you to lose hope? We sit in a time where we don't know the end of something that started more than a year ago. It's called COVID-19 because it started in 2019. And I'm certain that when we said we have to do a few things in March, 
We thought, oh, by June it'll all be settled. And then we did a few things over the summer and we got to the fall and we said, oh, I'm sure it'll be done by. And now does anybody think it'll be done? Maybe yes. But it's interesting that I don't hear people talk about hope when they talk about vaccines. Reality, most people talk about fear when they hear about vaccines. See, there's lots of tangible things that might take our hope away, but God points us to things that are bigger than the tangible things of this earth. Amen? We are pointed to the tangible things that God is victorious over sin and death, no matter what kind of disease may reign in our earth. And God points us to a love that he has for us and expects us to exert to others in spite of the fact that we need to be socially distanced. And we're worshiping with another hundred people or so that are online. We have this opportunity to say, I'm not going to let my life be dictated by my circumstances. I will be precautious. I will do the things that I need to do, but it will not stop my hope in what God's going to do. And I want to point you toward a specific hope. I do not know when when we're going to get to the other side of this. But it is my prayer that we can point to it as a time when things change, not to harm us, but for the betterment of the kingdom. That we appreciate our fellowship in a way we never appreciated it before. That we appreciate gathering to worship in a way that we didn't appreciate it before. That we appreciate the tray with bread that hasn't been hermetically sealed for months comes down the road and I break it with you and you break it with me I don't know all that God's going to do but he has a pretty good track record of taking the times that seem the most threatening to the church and turning them into his strongest possibilities you see Jesus never gave up on God's plan The disciples failed around him all the time. People couldn't figure out who he was or what he was doing. And he never gave up on the hope that God could do something wonderful. God was going to do something wonderful with his life. From the humility of the cross and his death to the victory of his resurrection, his life and his lordship, he never gave up hope. Rahab's example points us to the kind of faithful hope And what is not yet fulfilled that God affirms and blesses in each of our lives. From David, all the way back to Abraham, and even in Jesus himself. You're invited to choose today. See, hope doesn't come accidentally. Rahab didn't just kind of bump into hope in her life. She chose hope. You're invited to choose hope and to take your next step of faith And trusting Jesus. The one whose coming brought hope. The day he was born brought hope. The day they laid him in the grave. And church points us to a hope of all of us participating in resurrection by his resurrection. Amen. I invite you to come today. If we can help you in that process at all, 
I invite those of you online, if you would like to discuss these issues any further, there's a text number there that you can send a text to, and we will carry on that conversation. Won't you come and choose hope as we stand and sing? How sweet, how heavenly is the sight when the